Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of January 29th, 2018. On this week's show, Paula Levine of ESPN's Outside the Lines will join me and Slate's Ben Mathis Lilly to talk about her reporting on the failures of the Michigan State Athletic Department in dealing with sexual assault cases, failures that go well beyond the Larry Nassar sexual abuse case. ESPN's Howard Bryant will also be here to discuss the Australian Open, where Roger Federer won his 20th major championship, Caroline Wozniacki won her first, and Tennis Sandgren went from a fan favorite to a pariah in record time. Finally, The Roots' Damon Young will help me assess the NBA's first-ever All-Star Draft, and the seeming implosion of the Cleveland Cavaliers. Stefan Fatsis is out this week, so hopefully I won't screw this up too badly. Before we get rolling here, I want to let you know that the finale of Slow Burn, Slate's podcast about Watergate, is out on Tuesday. Get on that. Listen to it. Also, Slate is hiring for a couple of fantastic positions, a staff writer job and a business and technology editor job. You can go to slate.com slash jobs to get some more info on those positions. And now for our program. Last week, a Michigan judge sentenced Larry Nassar up to 175 years in prison after hearing statements from more than 150 women who Nassar sexually abused and his roles as a doctor and trainer for USA Gymnastics and Michigan State University. Over the weekend, the attorney general of Michigan announced that a special prosecutor will launch an investigation in the Michigan state and that no individual and no department at the school is off limits. That announcement came shortly after ESPN's Outside the Lines released a story by Paula Levine and Nicole Noren that detailed a history of sexual violence perpetrated by athletes at the school and accusations that Michigan State has shielded athletes from punishment and valued the success of its basketball and football programs over the welfare of women on campus. Joining me now is Paula Levine of ESPN's Outside the Lines. Welcome to the show, Paula. Thank you very much. And also with us for this segment is my colleague, Ben Mathis-Lilly, who's been writing about Larry Nasser 
and Michigan State for Slate. Hey, Ben. Hi, guys. Paula, your story covers a huge amount of ground. One of the big takeaways for me was that, and I'm quoting from it, um, since football coach Mark D'Antonio's tenure began in 2007, at least 16 Michigan State football players have been accused of sexual assault or violence against women, and that complaints involving athletes were routinely investigated and handled by the athletic department rather than other investigative bodies. Um, What stands out to you about what you found in your reporting on Michigan State? Well, one of the big takeaways is that there was not an acknowledgement of this, that, you know, so much focus has been on Nassar and deservedly so. I mean, it was so horrible what happened. But to to think that anything like that happens in a vacuum is naive. And and we're pointing out this is a much bigger problem. It extended into the football program. There were all these cases that were never reached the light of day in the media. And as you can imagine, we're on, uh, what, day three or four of this, and we're continuing to get calls. And so this is just going to get bigger. So you guys were on this a couple years ago as part of a larger investigation into sexual assault on campuses around the country, right? Um, in Michigan so State. Okay, yeah, yeah explain. <laughs> It was actually, so back in, in 2014, we started a story where we wanted to see if student athletes received preferential treatment from the criminal justice system. And that story was focused on all crimes, not specific to sexual assault. Just, you know, when they got busted for, uh, you know, disorderly conduct, were they getting a pass? And other, it was a data-driven story. We sort of looked at prosecution rates and everything. Well, Michigan State was one of 10 universities that we selected for that project, and it was incredibly difficult to get to get records out of them. They charged us thousands of dollars, dragged their feet for months. And when we finally got our first set of records, we noticed, oh, they've taken every single name out, <laughs> and which is nothing you could do. Which sort of hamstring. They weren't really useful to us at that point. So we sued them, and we went all the way up to the Supreme Court in the state of Michigan, and the. Uh, we ended up winning. Uh, judges ruled that they had to hand over the, the records and with the names. And so we thought we were good. Um, but that just sort of continued. And earlier this or last year, last summer, they actually um, sued us preemptively in trying to defend holding a different set of records. So it's just been this ongoing um, struggle with them to, to get information. Ben, what is your takeaway from um, the reporting on ESPN? Well, I, I wanted to uh, mention something I just saw uh, when I was walking in here, uh, which I think speaks to the points that were made in, in the ESPN in the Outside the Lines article about the level of influence that uh, Mark D'Antonio and Tom Izzo have um, in uh, at Michigan State and makes you understand you know, how something like this might happen, how, you know, and there's a lot, we're, we're still learning about it, but how it's certainly, uh, when, you, when you're looking at it now, it seems like the kind of situation that was set up uh, for this kind of uh, improper influence to be exerted, which is that uh, the, the Attorney General of Michigan, whose name is Bill Schutte, uh, has announced that he's, he's opening an investigation into Michigan State, uh, into their handling of these cases. Um, and in his, I, I don't know if it was a press conference or a statement, he notes that he will he he vows to investigate D'Antonio uh, just as thoroughly as anyone else, even though D'Antonio wrote the foreword for his book, which came out last year. <laughs> um, and you know, and then the other fact uh, that that was going around this morning is that um, uh, you know one of the players described in the in the piece 
was uh, serving as an assistant coach uh, for the Michigan State basketball team after having uh, played for Tom Izzo. Um, it was involved in two incidents uh, that Paul's piece describes. There's a piece being sent around from a small newspaper from a few years ago observing that uh, this player actually lived in Tom Izzo's house at the time. Um, this is uh, Travis Walton, uh, who was a player, became an assistant coach, and was involved in, in two incidents described in the piece. So I can't say I am entirely surprised by having read the piece, although uh, a lot of that information was totally new to me, even as someone who's from Michigan and, and writes about college sports and follows it. Uh, but when you look at those, uh, you look at how powerful Izzo and D'Antonio are in, in the Michigan State and, and in the state as a whole, um, and, and you see what kind of figures they are, uh, it's, it's in a way, it's not surprising. Paula, in press conferences over the weekend, both D'Antonio and Izzo began by saying they really want to focus on the victims here. And then when pressed on some of the specifics in your reporting, both kind of fell back on, we always reported things to the authorities um, and were just very non-responsive. Is that your your take? Yeah, and, and somewhat contradictory and, and a bit confusing. I mean, um, you know, you mentioned the thing with uh, Travis Walton living in Izzo's basement and Izzo expresses uh, confusion when he's asked uh, what, you know, when if Travis Walton left in the I mean, summer, I mean, how, how could you not know about what he did if he was living (laughs) clearly right this is yesterday after the game and he says he didn't he didn't remember uh right is that what you're referring to yeah yeah i mean i don't know he might have a big basement but (laughs) (laughs) i gotta think uh common sense would tell you otherwise so So. you you wrote a book paula called um violated exposing rape at baylor university amid college football sexual assault crisis you've done huge amount of work at um, at Baylor and and at other schools, I'm curious what you think at this early, relatively early stage of your reporting and our understanding of what's going on at Michigan State. What you see is some of the similarities or differences to what you found at Baylor. Right, I, I co-authored that book with my colleague Mark Schlebaugh, and one thing that he and I found at Baylor that is becoming very apparent at Michigan State is that these are systemic problems. Um, these Issues are prevalent in athletic departments, but so much of the handling of this stems from the very top of the university. Uh, The leaders who should be the oversight on this, in many cases, end up being the enablers. And that's just, that's such a problem. And and it's not just Baylor. It's not just Michigan State. Uh, This is happening all over the place. So the president of Michigan State, Luanna Simon, resigned last week. Uh, The athletic director, Mark Hollis, announced his retirement. So there are already people at extremely high levels at the university who are, um, you know, out uh, of of power because of the Larry Nassar scandal and now this sort of broader scandal. Ben, I'm curious what you think about kind of the focus does seem to be turning to D'Antonio and Tom Izzo. We didn't mention the, you know, horrific allegations against some pretty well-known Michigan State basketball players, um, Keith Appling and and Adrian Payne around uh, 2010. Do you feel like the focus on D'Antonio and Izzo as just these leading figures of the university and very prominent ones is appropriate now? Or do you feel like that sort of gets us away from understanding that, as Paul said, this is really a systemic 
problem. Right. I think, you know, I think there's, there's two sides of that. Um, you know, on, on one level, uh, you know, I think, of course, that you need to look at, uh, what these, uh, what these gentlemen have done, uh, what Izzo and Antonio have done to, to respond to the, to allegations. I, you mentioned the Baylor reporting that Paula did. Um, and I was re- reading some of that this morning. One thing that was striking is just how much there could be to still come out at Michigan State. I mean, th- this is, you know, the Baylor situation took years to play out. A lot of what was found out about what Art Bryles did came very late after he'd been dismissed uh, when he was involved in a lawsuit and, the re- and, and some regents released text messages that uh, Bryles had sent. And that was some of the most damning stuff um, about, the, about the way that he had handled or not handled um, sexual abuse and, and uh, assault charges. So, yes, on, on one level, I think absolutely uh, journalists need to focus on Izzo, D'Antonio, uh, because, you know, they are, you know, like we're, we're alluding to, some of the most powerful people at the university. Um, certainly Hollis and Simon um, had a role to play also. But, uh, but obviously everyone knows that, that the most powerful person at a college campus is usually the coach. And, and, and these are two coaches who were very, very successful and had a lot of power. So I, I absolutely think that the uh, focus on what they did or did not do is appropriate. The, the, the side of it that I think is maybe a little premature or, or beside the point is, is you know, it's speculation about whether they're, you know, they're going to get fired or they're going to resign. Um, you know, there were, there were kind of completely fake rumors on uh, last Friday about Izzo resigning. Some writers have, have read the Outside the Lines report and, and jumped immediately to saying, well, maybe D'Antonio won't be back next year. And I feel like that, you know, I'm not that it's premature or unfair to them, but it does maybe speak a little bit to the to the problem in that, you know, immediately we're turning from from these very serious criminal issues into, oh, well, you know, well, how will it affect Michigan State's football team? Yeah, I was going to I was going to say, yeah, Paula, that kind of there is the tension there between you want to hold these really powerful people to account. But on the other hand, I think Ben is right that it turns the attention to like, What'll happen to Michigan State football if Mark D'Antonio is gone? Right. Yeah. Nobody's nobody's really saying, "Oh my gosh, what's going to happen to Michigan State gymnastics?" You know, with after right. this, it's it's right. and, the, and the thing on that is the thing that's. I mean, we appreciate the attention and the focus on our coverage of, of the football and basketball players, but it is somewhat saddening that you had 150 some young women, and and it wasn't this explosive story until you involve the football and basketball programs. And that, I mean, that's, that's unfortunate in in many ways. I want to ask you about Lauren Allsweet, who is the sexual assault counselor who gives some really powerful um, testimony in um, your TV reporting and also in um, the written pieces that you guys have um, published. Um, if you know, or if you can say, like, what motivated her to come forward as somebody who was really on on the front lines of this and and dealing with the victims at Michigan State? She's really frustrated. She has stayed in contact with some of these women. Um, she's, you know, in as the NASA news broke, she was paying attention to what Michigan State was saying about you know, it's commitment to taking these things seriously and so forth. And she just always felt like the full story hadn't been told. And uh, she's an incredibly strong person. She has stood by what everything she said, and she continues to be an advocate for and a therapist for uh, sexual assault victims. And it seemed like she was very angered by what she heard from D'Antonio and Izzo. Is that a fair characterization? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think 
she she wrote up this you know she heard him saying in this press conference that these you know accusations were false and and she was very upset by that and so she wrote up this long email that she sent to me on on um, uh, she wrote it up on Friday sent it to me on Saturday it was very powerful and and really was sort of saying that um, the focus should be on on them taking responsibility for their for the, the tone that they set in the department and. She talks about how, you know, why when she was there and they had all these workshops, you know, why, why didn't she meet with them? And, and the fact that she didn't meet with them, that was a problem. Um, so she, she had a pretty strong response to, to him saying that. I have a, a deep question about Allsweed and uh, D'Antonio. Um, the allegation that was made in the article is that he at one point handled a report of assault directly. And that, that's what he denied, and that's what uh, seems to have upset her. I was wondering if there's anything more you can say about that allegation. I mean, this is, I believe this is the incident in which he was said to have talked to the player's mother or asked the player to tell his mother what he'd done, and that was considered an adequate discipline. Is that, am I right in, in remembering that? Right. And what he says, so here's exactly what he said. He said um, that he was here... He says, I'm here tonight to say that any accusations of my handling of any complaints of sexual assault individually are completely false. Um, And individually is one of those, you could say, hedge words, right? Right. So uh, in our story, you know, we indicated he had a role in handling this. Uh, It's unclear how much of a role he had. Uh, That information came to Lauren Allsweet from somebody else with the university. So clearly other people were aware of it. Right. Uh, th- this is one of those things where it's the devil is, you know, is in the details and, and exactly, you know, did he have the final say on it was, did he report it? But then, um, this was what people agreed was okay. Th- that's the question. Paula Levine is with ESPN's outside the lines. We will link to her reporting on our show page. You should definitely check it out. And we look forward to seeing, Um, What else you have on this story, Paula? Thanks so much for coming on the show. Great. Thank you. Apple Card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to the Australian Open, I want to let you know about our bonus segment for Slate Plus members. In a little bit, we're going to talk to Damon Young about the NBA All-Star Draft. We're going to have Damon stick around a little bit to talk more NBA and the concept of Warriors Derangement Syndrome. If you want to hear that, join Slate Plus. It's just $35 a year. If you do it, you can get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. On Sunday in Melbourne, Australia, Roger Federer beat Marin Cilic in five sets, 6-2-6-7-6-3-3-6-6-1, to win his sixth Australian Open title, his second Aussie Open in a row, his third Grand Slam in his last four starts, and his 20th overall Grand Slam title, extending his all-time mark for men's singles and getting him within three of Serena Williams. Meanwhile, on the women's side, friend of Serena, Caroline Wozniacki, 
won her first Grand Slam ever and ascended to number one in the world by outlasting Simona Halep, 7-6-3-6-6-4, in a grueling two-hour and 50-minute final. Joining me now is tennis writer and aficionado Howard Bryant. Howard is a columnist for ESPN the magazine, and he's also the author of the upcoming book, The Heritage, Black Athletes, A Divided America, and the Politics of Patriotism, now available for pre-order. How's it going, Howard? It's going great now that I, I know that I can go to bed and not have to wake up at three o'clock in the morning to watch tennis. Yeah, how it's is your Aussie it. Open schedule? Do you DVR or do you watch live? No, I watch it live. I can't I can't do the DVR. I think one of my favorite things in the world, though, I have to say when I've got to get my son up and get him ready for school, is to uh, is to get up at 6.15 and still see like we're in the fourth set of a match that I fell asleep on with all the lights on. There's this sort of like magical feeling like you're kind of I don't know how to describe it it's like you're you're by yourself in the dark watching like this event happen halfway around the world in the bright sunshine it feels like it's happening in an in alternate the, in universe the, in the summertime absolutely and it's 95 105 degrees out there so we're in the alternate universe of Caroline Wozniacki having now won <laughs> a grand slam title in her 43rd appearance in a grand slam tournament and she it wasn't even just in Grand Slam Tower. Like, she's had trouble closing out tournaments, like losing in a bunch of finals. And she, like, really, really earned this title, which was great to see. It was an unbelievable battle against another player, Halep, who had come up short um, repeatedly in Grand Slams. What did you make of that uh, of that match? I make a, a, a lot out of the entire fortnight, to be honest, when it comes to those two players. And that I think one thing that we don't appreciate enough, and I think it's simply a byproduct of maybe they make it look too easy or maybe because we're too detached because it's our entertainment, it's in their life. But it's how hard it is to win. And when you watch players, and especially tennis, because you have to be on a winning streak to win a tennis tournament. Yeah. It's, it's similar to the playoffs. It's, it's similar to the football playoffs in that you can't lose. The baseball playoffs, you can win, you know, if you've got home field, you can win every other game and win the championship and really not ever have to win two games in a row. If you've got home field and you win the first game, you just keep winning every other game. But in tennis, in a major, you got to win seven straight. And it's difficult to win seven straight matches at any time during the season. It's incredibly difficult to win seven straight matches at a Grand Slam because of all the heightened pressure and all all of that comes with it. And when I think about a player like Carolyn Wozniacki, uh, I've been up and down on Wozniacki. I was not a fan of hers when she was the world number one uh, before Serena, when Serena was hurt and before Serena came back and decided to tear the tennis world to pieces. Um, and part of the reason was I thought she was young and a little immature and a little arrogant. And I think she thought it came a little bit too easy. And I remember, you know, I used to refer to her as the paper tiger. And part of that reason was because she didn't hit winners. She didn't win Grand Slam. She didn't go deep into tournaments, even though she did go to, to, to one final. But there were always players out there that could challenge her. And yet, statistically, she was the world number one because she won the most matches and she won the most points. But there's a big difference between being the world number one and being the best player in the world. Yeah, the fascinating thing about her is that I think where it turned around was when she was training for the New York Marathon. You remember that a few years ago? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and 
So many people criticized her and said it was really stupid because you don't need to be you don't you don't need to have that kind of training to play well on a tennis court, which maybe seems wrong. But this is what we were um, hearing about her, and also that she was doing all these photo shoots. You know, she's in the that she, swimsuit yeah, that issue. Gone, yeah, that she'd gone Hollywood, and let's not forget the Roy McElroy stuff, and let's not forget the J.J. Watt stuff, and let's not. And now it's all of that just feels like. Noise, but I I had always disagreed with this with the with the marathon criticism because I think that one thing that running a marathon and training for a marathon also gives you do you have to be that fit to be in a tennis court no but it gives you a mental toughness it gives you a mental fitness right. if you can if you can conquer twenty six point two you can conquer three sets and you can remind yourself that you've got the fortitude to come through yeah that's the point that I was going to make and also. I felt like this was after the Rory McIlroy thing when she had become tabloid fodder and had kind of, you know, she'd been jilted and had become like not necessarily a laughing stock, but she was known for something that she didn't really want to be known for. It struck me, and maybe this is a little bit psych 101, but she was taking control of her life, doing a thing that she wanted to do, doing a thing that, as you said, required great mental toughness. I mean, even when, as you said, she was a paper tiger, like in 2009, there was this tournament in Doha, where she went into these full body cramps. I don't know if mm -hmm. you've seen that video. It's like the most shocking kind of on-court um, injury I've really ever seen. She's just on the ground, like kind of flailing around like yeah, an eel. Sure. It's mm -hmm. horrible to watch. And she ended up winning that match. I mean, this has always been a woman who's tough, despite maybe appearances and despite reputation. Um, but it seems like she's combined that with maybe finding a joy in the game and doing what she, what it is that she wants to do and not listening to other people. And it's all finally come together for her, plus Serena's out. <laughs> and plus Serena's out. And by the, by the way, even if she hadn't won, that's also true. Yes. Um, you know, because you don't have to win a championship to take control of your life. You don't have to win to be, you know, to fulfill some of those things that, you're, that we're talking about. Yes. And I think that we spend a lot of time only paying attention to those things when it happens, you know, when you actually finally hold up the big hardware, when, when you're, when you're holding up Daphne, wherever you go. And so I think that, um, I, I think that Carolyn Wozniacki is a, is a great testament to how hard it is to play these games. I mean, let's not forget for all we're talking about, about Maria Sharapova and she hasn't come back yet. I mean, she got demolished by Angelique Kerber in, you know, in, in Melbourne. And when you start looking at, Sloane Stevens goes out and wins a Grand Slam and she can't win a match now. She just won the, the U.S. Open four months ago and she can't win a match now. And so it's it's a difficult thing to do. And, and, and I think that she 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 proved how badly she wanted to win it, how hard she was willing to work, that she was willing to put the miles in to do it. She was willing to deal with the disappointments. And speaking of disappointments, you look at someone like Simona Halep and you wonder, you wonder how much more disappointment she can handle. She's she is moving into that space that nobody wants. The thing about Wozniacki and Halep is that it's never going to be easy for them. Not that it's easy for no. anyone to win a title, but Serena or Pliskova or Keys or Vandeweghe, they have amazing serves and forehands, and they can win easy points. If That's you watched right. this women's final. There weren't any, you know, free points to be had on that no, court. No, and especially that point was even more apparent in the Kerber-Hallop match where neither one of them were getting anything with their serve. 
they had to they needed 16 17 shots to win a point and eventually that will break you let's move on to the men where for most of the way roger federer seemed like he was in total control and the next thing you know marin chilic has a point to go up a break in the fifth set Federer ended up holding onto his serve there, and he eventually ran away with the final set 6-1, and he won the title. But there were some nervous moments there. Howard, I want to play this clip of Federer doing a post-match interview with Australian television. I found this fascinating because earlier in his career, when he was winning three majors a year, Federer was known as being kind of hilariously cocky, talking in a really matter-of-fact way about how great he was. But that is not how he sounds here. Let's listen. I got off a flyer, which was great, but then that made me think of, what if I won? My God, that'd be so cool. <laughs> then I had my chances, Marin played well, and then I just think I froze in the tiebreaker, and at the end of the second, I just think I got really nervous, and I think that's why I lost that second set and uh, couldn't uh, you know, take control of the match, really. And then it got a match, and it got tight, and I think Marin helped me out in the third and in the fifth to stretch the lead a little bit, so I, I got a little bit lucky tonight, I well, think. So that's humanizing, right, Howard? It's a reminder that even the greatest player of all time gets nervous. But are you surprised to hear Federer talk that way? Well, once again, what were we talking about earlier about how hard it is to win? And I think the players start to recognize, especially when you start aging, that maybe it's not going to come back around for me. Maybe it's not going to happen for me, even though I'm Roger Federer. I mean, let's remember that Roger went, Roger went five years between majors. He won number seven. I was there when he won 17, when he beat Andy Murray at Wimbledon in 2012 and then didn't win another major until 2017. And so when you start looking at that, I think he knows. And when you have these great comebacks or when you have those droughts, you have an appreciation for the game because it is slipping away. And when you're 25, it doesn't feel like it'll slip away. You feel like there's some way that I'm going to be different from everybody else. The one thing we know about sports is that age is undefeated. Time is undefeated. Time never loses. Tennis Sandgren, amazing underdog story, transformed into uh, not that in record time. Um, when people started looking at his Twitter feed, he uh, retweeted a guy named Nicholas Fuentes, who was a white nationalist who was prominent in the uh, Charlottesville rally. He also tweeted things himself about how Pizzagate was sickening. Uh, he wrote about Hillary Clinton's involvement in satanic rituals. He wrote in 2012 that he'd stumbled into a gay club and his eyes were bleeding. It was a rather remarkable uh, Twitter feed, Howard. What did you um, think about Tennis Sandgren's run and the discovery of his social media output and his response to it? Well, if you, if you, you follow Tennis Sandgren, what he said on, on Twitter is not surprising at all because he's been saying this for years. The problem is that he's not been any good and nobody was paying attention to what he was saying. Uh, it's a, a lot of what he said. It, it bothered me only because it didn't bother me because he said it because he is who he is. And I don't feel like I'm responsible for his rehabilitation simply because he won a Grand Slam match. I didn't care for him. I don't care for him. I have no interest in following him, and I think one of the very interesting things that we do in this sport, and it drives me crazy in terms of the coverage of the sport, is we treat tennis like it's the Olympics. We have a great tradition of American tennis, therefore we can't let this go. It's like being a, a Yankee fan or a Boston Celtics fan or a Montreal Canadiens fan. You've got this history that you built the sport, 
So therefore, we're always going to go nuts on American tennis. We're always going to try to talk about American tennis as if it requires more than what it's produced over the last few years, talking about the men. I have a bunch of thoughts here. Um, The first is that I think, you know, we can give... um, we can give people the benefit of the doubt, but I think it's really important before we do that to be very clear about what it is that we're talking about and what it is that he has said and that he's done. Because in this case, I felt very strongly that because of what he did was on social media, that it was treated by some people like it wasn't real or it was treated by some people like, he was just dishonest about what he had said and what he had done. Absolutely. People Couldn't just, have been more real. People just, but people just rolled with it. He claimed that it was, oh, I just follow certain people on Twitter and mm-hmm, I follow mm-hmm. people because I'm interested. I'm like a seeker and I want people to... Yeah, I'm uh, a seeker of truth. I just want to figure things out and learn from people, which is completely not true. And Josh, you bring up a really, you bring up a really, really good point too, which is treating it like it's not real. It actually couldn't be more real. But I always think about this in terms of the why. Why are we doing this to Tennis Sangren? Because Tennis Sangren is an American and we are being forced to care about him. Well, you know what? I like the athletes that I like. And tennis is a very special sport in this regard that that it's a very nationalistic sport. And because of it, we, you know, you watch a tennis tournament on ESPN and what do they talk about? Americans left in the draw. How many Americans are left? This is the first American to do this. I don't care about that, to be honest. And and I think this is where we ran into a journalistic coverage trap. He's an American, so therefore we're going to treat this like it's not real because he's he's messing with the feel-good story. And that's the battle that we were in. We were kind of caught in that trap of, okay, here's a guy who's got a great underdog story. However, he's no hero, and he's not even he's, – he's, he's not somebody that is going to be easy for you to root for. So Chris Fowler said on ESPN um, towards the tail end of his match with Chung and sort of trying to like wrap up this guy's tournament, he sa- Fowler said he's a thoughtful guy. And if you want to characterize people with labels, clickbait headlines, I'd caution you to just be a little bit careful and get to know something more about somebody, which I found very interesting because here was the Tennis Sandgren progression during the tournament. So the first press conference he has when somebody asks him about his tweets, his response was, don't infer what I believe from my tweets. Just ask me what I think, and I'd be happy to tell you. Then the next day, he says, I'm a Christian, and I believe in the teachings of Christ, and also I'm going to delete all of my tweets so, yeah, you can't exactly. actually, so you can't even see what I believe, and I'm just yeah, going like, to also- say I'm a Christian. And also, the public doesn't have the opportunity to go ask you directly what you think. You sent this out there, and I thought what and I thought what Chris Fowler said. I I thought that was the the most egregious comment of the whole tournament. It's like, are you going to tell me that you're that you know this guy? Are you are you riding with this, or are, once again are you riding with the narrative because you don't want to deal with how difficult and how murky this really is? I don't think I was like, is this the hill you want to die on? Because I don't think that what Tennis Sangren has done was very defensible at all. Um, And then the last point in this progression that I wanted to make was, so he first goes, just ask me what what I believe. Then he says, I'm a Christian. Then the last thing, he goes to his press conference after his final match, and he reads this statement off his phone, and we can play some of that in a second. 
But the basic point of that statement was actually don't ask me what I believe. Don't yeah, ask exactly. me about anything. Just ask me about the tennis match. Let's listen yeah. to a little bit of that. You seek to put people in these little boxes so that you can order the world in your already assumed preconceived ideas. You strip away any, any individuality for the sake of demonizing by way of the collective. With a handful of follows and some likes on Twitter, my fate has been sealed in your minds. To write an edgy story, to create sensationalist coverage, there are a few lengths you wouldn't go to to mark me as the man you desperately want me to be. You would rather perpetuate propaganda machines instead of researching information from a host of angles and perspectives while being willing to learn, change, and grow. You dehumanize with pen and paper and turn neighbor against neighbor. In so doing, you may actually find you're hastening the hell you wish to avoid, the hell we all wish to avoid. This might sound unduly harsh, Howard, but when I listen to that statement that he made, what I hear is somebody who, I don't know if it's like that they're not that worldly. It's like somebody well, who thinks that they're smarter than they are. Tennis Angren got exposed, and I'll just leave it at that. Howard Bryant is a writer for ESPN. He is also the author of the upcoming book, The Heritage, Black Athletes, A Divided America, and the Politics of Patriotism. Thanks so much, Howard. Oh, my pleasure. Call anytime. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, I, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many you know, more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal. Listen to The Deal on Spotify. Last Thursday, with no TV cameras anywhere in sight, leading all-star vote-getters and team captains LeBron James and Steph Curry picked their rosters for the 2018 All-Star Game via conference call. What we know for certain is that LeBron took Kevin Durant with his first pick. What we also know for certain, and LeBron agrees, is that this thing should have been televised. Hey, I'm going to tell you this. I'm going to tell you this, Ernie. This thing should have been televised. And, me, and when me and Steph was doing the draft, we started laughing very hard at one point. I'm not even going to tell you what part it was, <laughs> but we started laughing very hard at one point. It definitely should have been televised, well, that's for sure. We will never know why they were laughing. We do know also that um, Russell Westbrook thought he got picked last. Uh, listen to this locker room interview in which Carmelo Anthony is egging him on in the background. This is amazing. Thoughts on being picked by LeBron for the All-Star team? Oh, that's cool, man. That's good, man. Finally, they got the team figured out. Tell me how you really feel. Well, I see I was the last pick on the list. I was just trying to figure out, you know. Alphabetical order. It was alphabetical. See, I told you, man. Alphabetical order, man. Of course I was first. Of course. What are you talking about? Joining us now is Damon Young of The Root, who was my first pick to talk about the NBA's first annual All-Star Conference call. How's it going, Damon? I, I feel good. I, I feel like Kevin Durant. <laughs> you should. You should be extremely honored. I think, um, you know, the fact that LeBron and Steph were kind of teasing us and talking about how fun it was, was a little bit of an enticement. But the yeah. fact that Russ was just like pretending that he was cool with it, um, also wearing like that yellow shirt with holes in it um, that, that he rocked uh, last week as 
a typical Westbrookian fashion statement. But the fact that he was pretending that everything was hunky-dory and then when he finds out that he wasn't actually the last pick, just starts yelling at Carmelo, that I think is the proof that we that we needed, that um, we need to know the draft order. We need to have this on television because people have so many feelings about this. Yeah, and, and, and the thing is, I mean, these... You know, although they're all NBA All-Stars and all millionaires and superstars or whatever, these are also like hypersensitive um, men, athletes who take every slight personally. And so, yeah, it would have been awesome just to see the drama of, you know, oh, DeRozan, because according to this list, DeRozan went last. So is he going to come out and, you know, try to get 50 in the All-Star game to prove that he shouldn't have gone last in, in in the starters draft? And and so, yeah, that would have been I, I still think the draft itself is just a really cool idea. I, I'm not that disappointed that it wasn't televised. Um, it's almost like um, you order a Sunday and the Sunday doesn't come with a cherry. I feel like the, te- the, the right. televised part would have been a cherry. Right. But I'm, I'm happy that I got a Sunday. It was just so perfect that the supposed draft order comes out. It was actually just like LeBron tweeting out the list of everyone he had picked in alphabetical order. And John Wall is right in front of Westbrook. Mm -hmm. And the Wizards are playing the Thunder that night. Westbrook goes out and scores 46 to prove to everyone that he's better than John Wall. He actually just proved to everyone that Westbrook is behind Wall in alphabetical (laughs) order. But just as you said, um, everything is better in the NBA when people have chips on their shoulders and people have something to prove. And this is like a totally harmless way to get people mad at each other. Yeah. And I'm actually glad that, um, your podcast draft wasn't, you know, you know, wasn't tele or wasn't televised. There was no list out because with my last name, I would have, I would have had an issue because I would have been listed last (laughs) and I would have came on here screaming and calling you all types of MFs and everything just to prove, that you know, I needed to be the first guest, the first choice. But um, but yeah, and this this thing, you know, with the with the All Star Game, even though, you know, I, I think that often we treat it as like this meaningless expo- um, exhibition, and sometimes the players play like it is. Um, it does. It matters a lot to them. It matters a whole lot. Um, you know, there's a story about um, that I was just reading about the. I think the All-Star Game in 90 or 91 when A.C. Green was uh, voted ahead of Carmelo as a starter. And then the next night, Carmelo goes out and gets 61 <laughs> in like 33 minutes. I don't think they were playing the Lakers, but he was just, you know, doing that to prove a point. And, and it's funny how you see the some non The non-controversial point that Carmelo is better than A.C. Green. Yeah. Um, Andre Drummond had like, you know, 30 points, 25 rebounds, and I don't know how many blocks when found out he wasn't all, on the All-Star team. Ben Simmons had a triple-double in like seven minutes <laughs> or something <laughs> crazy like that. I mean, and you, and you think if you have like this in you, why not do that like all the time? Andre right. Drummond. That's a, you good, know, that's a good point. Awesome. We've got to piss Andre Drummond off just as like a, na- a national project. Yeah. We just need to just always be making Andre Drummond angry. Let's go through um, the draft order. So this is per Jackie McMullen. She announced this um, per her sources, the legend Jackie McMullen on 
the ESPN show Around the Horn. So this is the first time ever that the ESPN show Around the Horn has ever been useful. Um, so we have that. Um, here is, according to Jackie McMullen, the way that things went. So um, LeBron James had the first pick because he had the most votes and he is the captain of uh, one of the teams. And he went with Kevin Durant. Then um, Steph had the second pick and he picked Giannis Antetokounmpo from the Bucks. And I think, Damon, this is the first interesting choice because um, he went with Giannis over Anthony Davis, who LeBron took next. What do you think about this um, idea, I guess, um, at least in Stephen Curry's mind, that Giannis is better than Anthony Davis? Um, I think in a format like this, he is because in, in an all-star game, you know, you, you want a guy like LeBron, like Durant, like John, like Giannis, who is going to get a, who's going to get a rebound and go coast to coast like that. Because no, you know, especially in the first two quarters, though, that's when those type of guys really like get their stats up and you want to have a guy that could just get the ball and go and not need an outlet. Because those are the guys that function the function the best in all star games, um, and so in this format, I think he's better. I think he's better than Anthony Davis. Just and just without the all star game, anyway, I would choose him before I chose Anthony Davis. Controversial. It's like it's like splitting hairs with me, but I would gun to my head pick Jonas. Um, but um, but yeah, I think that in this format, he would be more effective because you know Davis is more of a finisher. Yeah, and, Giannis would be the a really fun guy to play with. Yeah, in an all star game, who can finish and who, and who can also start to break himself. Um, Anthony Davis is amazing, though. All right, so after that, um, Steph picked James Harden, um, which led to uh, the fascinating phenomenon of LeBron choosing Kyrie Irving. Um, do you feel like? LeBron took Kyrie because he was the best player on the board. And so obviously you, you're going to want to pick the best team. So you're going to take Kyrie. Do you think that he did it because he actively wanted Kyrie on his team? Do you think he did it to like um, make people think that uh, he and Kyrie were cool? Like there are a lot of potential uh, theories here. I think all of those answers are right. <laughs> Like at the exact same time, um, there's 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 quite a bit of overlap there. Um, like I'm I'm looking at the draft board right now, um, the list, and and it went pretty much how I think you would expect it to go, even without any sort of like personal histories or context. I mean, maybe you switch Giannis and Anthony Davis. Maybe you know, maybe you switch Harden or Kyrie. I I, I don't know, but for an All Star game. Not not you know a eighty not a regular NBA season regular season game, but I think this is the order that it should have gone. And you know Steph and Kyrie, there's too much duplication there, so it's obvious why Steph wouldn't pick him. So I I think that um yeah I, I think that he landed right where he's supposed to land. And and yes you know LeBron probably wanted to you know do this big show of like this performative magnanimity, like, you know, I'm the bigger person. There's no feud here. I'm not the one who pushed Kyrie out. I'm just letting everyone know that. And I'm going to pick them on my team. And and during that game, they're going to be hugging. They're going to be patting each other's heads. You know, they might even have a pat <laughs> off like they did the first game of the season where they just kept, it was almost like this, um, I don't know, like a, like a shoot off 
or something. Like they didn't want to be the first one to stop padding. And I I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if they just, if they just stood at half court, just did that for five minutes. Um, I guess if, but you're exactly right. Like the draft went kind of according to how you or I would do it just without any kind of considerations of, I don't want to be with this guy just based on talent and based on team fit. And so I think ultimately if LeBron hadn't picked Kyrie there, it would have been obvious that he was actively avoiding taking him. And so it might've been less of a proactive, I want Kyrie on my team and more of like, I'll just, it'll, it'll be a storyline if I don't take him here. Mm -hmm. And I also think, you know, in in a day, I guess the day of the draft when these picks were, were um, leaked out and um, there was a lot of criticism over Steph's, over Steph's starting lineup. Basically people just asking him, was he blind or was he, did he lose a bet or something <laughs> in the team that he picked? But in an all-star game, I, you know, I, I, I might rather have DeMar DeRozan than DeMarcus Cousins, you know, in an up and down type of game. Because, I mean, neither of them are going to be guarding or, or playing defense anyway. So I'll take the guy that can handle the ball a bit more, that can shoot better in, in a situation like that. So, you know, I, I think LeBron's team, you know, without the Cousins injury, obviously is a better regular season NBA team. But for an all-star game type of game, you know, I don't think they're that uneven. At least the starters. Okay. So... I think it's important here, and it does seem like it's going to be televised um, next year. And also, you know, we shouldn't necessarily lump together. Like, they also just didn't release the draft order, so almost like being televised is a bit like a red herring. Like, it would be it would be really fun to watch them do the draft live, and I I would mm-hmm. definitely watch that. But you know, they could have released. The order and not televised it. So I think, you know, next year they will release the draft order. They will televise it, but it's really important that you have two guys in Steph and LeBron who like are totally secure in terms of um, their reputations, in terms of their legacies and just like, don't give a shit. And so, um, you know, LeBron has Westbrook and Durant on his team. He also has um, Kyrie on his team. Uh, it doesn't seem like they were really shying away from, you know, making picks that would be uncomfortable or controversial, which makes it a lot more fun. Steph did pick like all of his teammates that he could possibly pick. Like he, um, based on the leaked order, um, it looked like he took Clay Thompson and Draymond Green um, with his first two picks among the reserves. It would have been admittedly a lot more fun if he just like refused to take those guys and then and made them pissed off and, uh, the warrior season fell apart, but I guess that's not really a possibility. Well, you know, I, I, I'm going to push back a little bit on what you just said. Cause I, I do think LeBron, LeBron is not securing his legacy right now. Um, and he does care. I, I don't think Steph cares as much about something like this, but I think LeBron as hyper sensitive as he is to how he's perceived and social media and, and, and and just how people regard him and assess what he does, I, I definitely think that he put a lot of thought into it. And now, even without the thought, his picks are still picks that are natural picks. You know, he didn't pick DeMar DeRozan first. I mean, I, I keep harping on DeMar DeRozan, but, you know, he's a great player. But 
he didn't pick him first. He picked exactly how, again, I think he should have picked. Um, but I think but it's po- I, think- I think it's possible. Like there's a universe in which there could have been some horse trading and LeBron like let Steph take Durant. Like that could have happened. And I think it's a credit to them that they didn't do that. Maybe that's like a low bar, but like obviously you're going to pick Durant first. And if you, if you don't, if LeBron doesn't take Durant first, then the whole thing is pointless, right? Yeah. And, um, you know, I, I think that, you know, some, I, I forgot who, but someone joked on Twitter that, you know, he got, he got him and Kyrie on the same team and, and Russ and Durant, you know, who knows? He might have been able to get Tupac and Biggie in the same booth. <laughs> you know, if he has these type of, if he's this type of diplomat. Um, and so, yeah, I think LeBron cares about that type of stuff, um, a, a little bit more than Steph probably does. Um, okay. because again, you know, he, he is still concerned about, you know, his place in that whole, I guess, top five or top three or whatever NBA pantheon. And so these things matter to him. All right. Last thought on this before we move on to the Cavs. Um, we've talked about poor DeMar DeRozan being the last of the starters to get picked. And um, based on the reports we've seen, USA Today had um, the full draft order. They had the last pick in the whole draft among the reserves as LaMarcus Aldridge, which is perfect, right? Like mm-hmm. out of this list of people, LaMarcus Aldridge is somebody who, like DeRozan, is just an amazing player, great player. But out of this list, like LaMarcus Aldridge is the guy that you're going to pick last. He's not somebody that you want to watch in the All-Star game. He's somebody who's kind of come up a little bit small in the playoffs before, like with the, with the Spurs. He hasn't been like, he's obviously an All-Star, but he's just like not somebody you can necessarily count on. Like LaMarcus Aldridge is the perfect last guy to pick in the All-Star draft. Oh, I agree. I mean, there's guys like that in all-star game every year where, you know, they obviously deserve to be there because of their accomplishments during the season, but then they get into the game and you're like, why are they on the court? Can <laughs> can someone please sub this person out? Like Paul Millsap is the all time. It's like on a Mount Rushmore of like, the <laughs> Al Horford too, right? season, you know, the all-star resume, but totally definitely does not belong in the game at all. Al Horford, right? He was the second Al to last pick. Another one. Al Horford's another one. You know, um, the um, the Rosen, you know, uh, Kevin Love is a guy that I, you know, I don't, I don't need to see him on the court at all in the All Star game. Um, Kevin Love predicted that he was going to be the last pick, but LeBron took him rather early. I think again for like locker room harmony purposes. Yeah, you know, and LeBron, you know, he's again, he's always thinking he wants to get, you know, kind of like with uh with Hillary trying to get um what what was his running mate Tim Kaine so. He's trying to get like the white vote, <laughs> so he makes sure <laughs> that he gets like the um one of the only the only American white player on his team. So you know LeBron again, he's always thinking, always thinking, always thinking politically. All right, so the Cavs beat the Pistons on Sunday night, which is like noteworthy that the Cavs won a game. Congratulations, that's huge for them. It is. Um, Coach uh, Teron Liu um, did not play Isaiah Thomas. In the fourth quarter, he says that he wants to not always have LeBron and Isaiah on the court 
at the same time. This team has some major issues on the court and off the court. They're second to last in the league in defensive rating. They're fighting it out with the Sacramento Kings, which when you're doing that, you're you might as well just be dead last. Um and they had this huge beef in the locker room where people were accusing Kevin Love of like not really being sick when he came out of the game. People are saying that Isaiah is shooting too much. Um, there was the whole weird anonymous press conference where these Cavs players talked to um, reporters from ESPN and The Athletic and the Cleveland paper and basically said, our team is bad. <laughs> um, this doesn't seem like the usual Cavs drama. This seems worse. And, and you know, we say that every year. <laughs> But this, but we, but it has I, to be worse. Like sometimes, I, I, I even if you say it all the time, sometimes one time I, it's going to be worse. I, I know, but it, it. And I'm not. I'm not underselling the chaos drama, but it. But I am still hesitant to really. Uh, I'm hesitant to really put too much meaning behind it because, again, we we every year since LeBron has been back in Cleveland, this has been like uh, right before the All Star break. The Cavs, you know, there's something wrong with them. And then, and then around the All Star game, or after the All Star game, they go on this run, and they end up, you know, being a team that looks like they could at least get to the finals. And I, I think that they're much worse this year. Like I, I think that they under I, I, Isaiah Thomas just even healthy. I don't think is a good replacement for Kyrie. And um, you know, a guy like Jay Crowder is a guy that. I feel like this happens with with NBA media sometimes where they might look at a guy like, you know, and I'm going to say this. They look at a black guy with with uh, with dreadlocks and assume that he's a lot tougher, more athletic than he actually is just because of like how he looks. And he has the tattoos. Oh, he must be athletic. He must be strong. He must be tough. And Jay Crowder is a guy that runs from three point line to three point line right now. Um, and he's not making threes. I have no comment on his toughness, threes. but he's not making threes. Yeah, he, he has these muscles. You know, he, he should go trial for tight end or something, you know. And I, I'm i not surprised, though, by the issues that the Cavs are having this year. Um, you know, Isaiah Thomas is a guy that, although he had, he, he, he is a great player. And had a one of probably the all-time great seasons for a guard ever last year. But he is also a guy, if you follow his career, there have always been locker room rumblings wherever he's been. You know, in Sacramento, they existed. In Phoenix, they existed. In Boston, they existed. And he's a guy that, if he is not like your alpha main, you know, superstar guy, is going to make things a little difficult and which is understandable because, you know, a guy to his size being as good as he is, you have to just carry, you just have to always have a chip on your shoulder. You always have to be a bit of a dick. And you also have to be physically like your absolute 100% best to be able to succeed at the NBA given his, his body type, his size. And he's just, not that and he doesn't adjust his game based on or he hasn't so far based on not being physically right he still shoots the ball like every time he has it in his hands and he's bad defensively like i was watching the spurs Cavs game last week and it is just 
I mean, the numbers don't lie in this case. It is just unbelievable how bad they are defensively. Like Derek Rose doesn't play that much, but when he was in the game, he was like operating in an alternate universe in which defense is illegal. Like <laughs> he is just un it's unreal how bad he is and how he just loses his his man. Um and so, you know, if you watched any of the Celtics Warriors game on Saturday, like the Celtics are one and one against the Warriors. Now this year, they split the season series. That game came down to the last seconds. The Celtics are the best defense in the league. They compete really, really hard. And if you watch that compared to the Cavs going against up against the Warriors, I mean, it's no contest. Yeah. Yeah, the Celtics match up much better um, with the Warriors. I mean, maybe the Cavs can still beat the Celtics, but the Celtics would be a better matchup against the Warriors. I don't know. I, I, I agree. I agree. Um, I, I I think that this um, this Cavs team would get swept and in an easy sweep um, yeah. by the Warriors. Whereas I think That's the Celtics, yeah, I think the Celtics can dirty the game up a bit against them, especially you know they with Marcus Smart out there too doing Marcus Smart shit. Um, I I believe that they you know can make things a lot more uncomfortable for them than the Cavs would, and and that's how you beat the Warriors is you you make things uncomfortable, you know, for three and a half quarters, and then you hope you have a guy that can that can you know match or outmatch Steph and and Durant and and those last like six minutes, and you know the Celtics have a guy like that, you know that could get hot, and you know uh, a seven game series and you know maybe maybe win a couple um and the Cavs just don't have enough guys to dirty the game up if they beat if they are to compete with the Warriors they would have to outscore them and they're not going to outscore the Warriors they're just they just don't have that type of firepower we should wrap this up although I do want to mention we would be remiss not to note the amazing story which Kyrie Irving has refuted but Cleveland.com had a report that um, the re- one of the reasons that Kyrie ended up uh, getting traded because people have been like, why didn't they just keep him? You you know, he was under contract. Apparently, he threatened to get knee surgery if they didn't <laughs> trade him. He like, I'm imagining him like walking into the GM's office just with a scalpel, like hovering <laughs> over his knee. It's like, if you don't trade me, I'm gonna slice. I'm gonna slice in here again. He's refuted it, but that's probably true. I mean, it, it's it's that's. That just tells you how crazy things are in Cleveland, where a story as ridiculous as that, like a, a, a player in this prime of his career, would risk going under the knife to, to you know, <laughs> his his already surgically repaired knee, would risk that rather I've than... I've done play. it before, man. You know I'll do it again. Yeah. Like, that's that. And again, the fact... Like, I don't believe it, but the fact that that was actual... That that was an actual story that came out of Cleveland and people believed it just let you know how dire things are in that locker room right now. Damon Young is a writer for The Root. Always uh, fun to have you, Damon. Thank you very much. Thanks for having me. Step into the world of power, loyalty, and luck. I'm going to make him an offer he can't refuse. With family, cannolis, and spins mean everything. Now, you want to get mixed up in the family business. Introducing... The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of the Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play the Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Now it is time for After Balls. 
I did not get around to mentioning it in uh, our segment just completed about the NBA All-Star Game, but um, there was an NHL equivalent of this draft in 2012. The NHL doesn't do it anymore, but back then they did this thing where players got picked and there was a last guy picked and it was Logan Couture. He played for the Sharks. And there was a consolation prize that the NHL gave. Logan Couture got a brand new Honda Crosstour vehicle. He was asked um, if he would be cool with um, being the last pick if he got a car. He said, maybe, what kind of car is it? It's unclear if he thought that a Honda Crosstour was worth it um, to be the last guy picked, if that was enough uh, of an enticement to make him feel less sad. But, you know, possibility for the NBA make uh, the last pick feel good about himself, give the dude a car. Um, so we will honor Logan Couture. Here is my Logan Couture. Over the weekend in San Diego, Tiger Woods finished 72 holes in a PGA Tour event for the first time in more than two years. Although he couldn't hit the ball straight off the tee, he did manage to shoot par or better all four rounds and finish in the top 30 which is pretty damn impressive considering the dude had spinal fusion surgery in April and could not swing at all for six months. Tiger has had pretty serious back issues for a long time now, but back in November, a hang-up listener named Matt Shaw made me aware of a golfer whose health problems were way, way more severe. It is a crazy story, which I will tell you now. Ebenezer McBurney Byers, known as Eben for short, won the U.S. Amateur in 1906. In its write-up of Byers's triumph, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch noted that those who love a good sportsman and high-class performer will be very glad that at last the golf championship of the United States has fallen to Mr. Eben Byers of Pittsburgh. Upon one occasion, he was beaten for the title by a huge fluke when Lewis James, a third-class man, happened to be playing a first-class game of golf. That is kind of rude to Lewis James. We're going to put that aside for the rest of this after ball. We're going to talk about Evan Byers. Um, the St. Louis Post-Dispatch went on to praise him for his consistency, his pertinacity, his fine spirit and losing and modesty and victory. He was courageous. He was well-tempered. He persevered. And triumph came as it always does to those who try and who wait. Byers's fortune, though, turned out for the worse a few decades later. The story of his untimely death is told in a 1990 article written by Ron Winslow, published in the Wall Street Journal, under the memorable headline, The Radium Water Worked Fine Until His Jaw Came Off. That story began, in 1927, a steel mogul and socialite named Eben McBurney Byers tumbled from the top berth of his private Pullman compartment en route home to New York from the Harvard-Yale football game. He was apparently engaged in some vigorous post-game revelry at the time. What happened next led ultimately to his gruesome death. The cause of his gruesome death was radium poisoning, which Byers acquired by drinking a patent medicine called Radithor that was marketed as, among other things, an aphrodisiac with promises that improved blood supply sent to the pelvic organs and tonic effects upon the nervous system generally result in a great improvement in the sex organs. Byers was reportedly taking the medicine, gulping two or three bottles a day because he'd hurt his arm while falling out of that train berth. Radithor was, per the Wall Street Journal, nothing more than distilled water laced with radium, and Byers sent cases of it to business partners and girlfriends and even fed it to his racehorses. 
those poor horses. After two years of feeling good on Raidathor, Bayer started to lose weight and, and get headaches. By 1931, his whole upper jaw, excepting two front teeth, and most of his lower jaw had been removed, while all the remaining bone tissue of his body was disintegrating and holes were forming in his skull. In March 1932, Byers died of radium poisoning in a New York City hospital. Roger M. Macklis, a radiation oncologist, wrote a journal article about Byers in 1990. Macklis had managed to track down some bottles of Radithor from an antiques dealer, and he figured out that Byers had ingested enough radium to kill four people. But you'll recall that Byers was feeling good for two years before he got sick. Macklis speculated that it is possible that chronic low-level doses of powerful alpha radiation do have at least a temporary stimulative effect, probably by provoking a defensive response that triggers production of fresh blood cells within the bone marrow. But please, (laughs) I beg of you, do not try Radithor at home. The stimulative effect, it is not worth it. Trust me, no Radithor. Don't do it. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Ford, and our intern is Jason Rosenzweig. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. And you can email us at hangup at slate.com. You should also check out the Political Gab Fest. Stars the legendary Emily Bazelon, the immortal John Dickerson, and America's sweetheart, David Plotz. Voted favorite political podcast by iTunes listeners. Stephen Colbert says everybody should listen to the Slate Political Gab Fest. Do not defy Stephen Colbert. Go to slate.com slash gabfest to get your weekly fix. Thanks to all of our guests this week, Paula Levine, Ben Mathis Lilly, Howard Bryant, and Damon Young. I am Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty, and thanks for listening. You can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. 
And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.